Good morning. Nobody wanted to sit up there. I don't know. It's just kind of odd. Well, it is good to be in the Lord's house this morning. So thankful for Greg and his uh, his um, preaching last week um, and uh, challenging through his word, or not through his word, through God's word. You know, hopefully his Bible that he owned, but it was God's word. All right, get out of a ditch. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. Uh, As you are finding your place in chapter number three, uh, let me remind you that this coming Wednesday is our annual business meeting, our quarterly business meeting, but also our annual business meeting. And if you're a member, I strongly encourage you to come and uh, be a part of what's going on here at the church. And uh, we are looking at taking on two new missionaries, and so we'll uh, see a little bit of their ministry and their work this coming Wednesday night, and you don't want to miss that, of course, in the other, um, the other regular business. If you're not a member, we encourage you to come also. We'll be praying together. You don't have to know a secret handshake to get in the door, uh, so you're more than welcome to come and uh, to see what God is doing here and how God is working through this church, so that's this coming Wednesday. What time? So eight of us will be here at 7 (laughs) o'clock. Also, Lord willing, uh, this coming uh, coming up in the next couple weeks, we'll begin a series through the book of Hebrews. And uh, so you can uh, take time over this next week, uh, next week or two, and begin reading through uh, the letter to Hebrews uh, and become familiar with that uh, in preparation. It takes 45 minutes to sit down from beginning to end uh, to get through the the book of Hebrews, and that's with two interruptions. I mean, that's like answering one text message and, and going and getting a cup of coffee. So that's not bad, right? 45 minutes of your life, and you still get distractions. Well, this morning, uh, with your Bibles open to the book of Colossians, chapter number 3, I want to look at the <clears throat> uh, and consider together our identity in Christ, our identity in Christ. Identity is what defines us. It's how we describe who we are to others. It's how we see ourselves through the lens in which we see ourselves. Traditionally, and, uh, and really in the family unit, we describe ourselves in those terms of being a father or a husband, a son, uh, or a wife or a mother or a daughter. Uh, some, some of you identify yourself as pop-pop or grandmother or whatever it might be. So you see those terms and in ways in which we come to describe who we are. Uh, In society, we we look at that in kind of a broader spectrum. We define ourselves as a citizen, American citizen. I was born in Frankfurt, Germany. My dad was in the military, but I am a U.S. citizen. And so that impact uh, that has on my life revolves around the fact that I belong here. I don't pay taxes to Germany. I was born there. I pay taxes here to the United States. And So it has that implications on who we are, our identity. And we see that even a broader scale in our culture with uh, other things such as uh, our hobbies and our expressions. And you might read someone's about page on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or how parlor. I guess that's one too, right? Uh, So you might read that and they begin to define themselves as a blogger or an expert or this or that. And so there's these things which we use as adjectives or or ways to kind of uh, discover and tell others, this is the real me. 
This is what I'm about. This is who I am. We see the, uh, the pain of that in our society through politics and identity politics as we begin to identify ourselves not only in relationships but, but in relationship to ourselves, how we perceive reality around us, how we feel like we are or who we feel like we might be. And so we struggle with that in our culture right now. And there's two ways as we look at that. Uh, and one way would be looking at who we are as human beings. I mean, what does it mean to be human? We won't do that, though that is a noble and worthy uh, study that we may do at some point. But this morning, I want to look at, rather, who we are as Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is our identity in Christ? I remember reading a, a church history book. It was geared towards a younger a generation, so it was it was easier to read and it was more exciting. So, if you read those history books of church history that are geared for older people, you might find them very long and kind of hard to get through. But this was a, a very exciting book. Very quickly, you could go through these stories. And one of the things that stood out to me was during the time that these martyrs were brutally being murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, thrown to lions and all the other things that was done to them, they would go through the process of being interrogated. The, the, the person who was hurting them or causing harm upon them, persecuting them, would, would ask them who they were. Uh, and their answer was, I'm a Christian. Isn't that fascinating? I think it's fascinating. You might be thinking, what's the big deal? We know you're a Christian. That's why you're in this predicament. We want to know who you are. Is your name Sally and are you from Wales or are you from Long Lake or whatever the case may be? Who are you? And yet their answer replying back throughout the interrogation was simply, I am a Christian. As if that was enough to describe the, the whole essence of who they are. And with us, we need paragraphs and paragraphs to, to define. I hate the question. Somebody tell me something about yourself. I don't know what you want to hear. You want to know what I do? You want to know what I like? I don't understand that question. And I think uh, a lot of people don't understand that question. But here, summing up the reality of who they are, I'm a Christian. Gallup poll has an interesting uh, survey that they periodically do as of 2015. Uh, the survey said that two-thirds of Americans, or 75.2%, I guess that's a little over two-thirds, claim to be Christian. Would you guess that? Uh, a survey in America, 75% Christian. It, it is down, and part of the survey was lamenting the fact that you see a decrease in Christianity in the United States. In 2009, the survey said 79% of Americans was Christian, uh, which was down from 92% in 1950. So in the space of roughly, what, two generations? I may be off a little bit, but in the space of two generations, we have lost, uh, lost almost 20% professing Christians. Well, I don't think we've lost them. I just think it's less convenient or, or unnecessary to claim Christianity as it was maybe in those days, but that's something altogether different. I want you to consider just for a moment before we look at what God's Word says that that statement, 75% of Americans confess to be Christians. And that's not that long ago. 2015, we can almost remember that. And 2020 is very large, and sometimes that takes over our whole entire life, but, but just a few five years ago, 
three quarters of America. And you look at where we are as a nation in violence and anger and rage and hatred and we're marginalizing people, we're putting people in boxes, we're, we're demonizing and, and all of this going on, would you expect that in a country that claims two-thirds of its, of its population to be Christian? Well, if you're like me, and I'll go ahead and answer since you're not speaking, no. It's a remarkable number to think that this is what they come up with. Now, now two things are going on here. One, I think whoever's doing the math, whoever's putting the numbers in the calculator, is coming up with all of the findings, are they must have got it messed up. Uh, they, they actually added too many times or pushed times instead of plus or something's going on with the math, whoever's putting the number in the system. That is possible. Would you agree with that? Or the other possibility, which is probably more probable and that is the fact that what we come to understand being a Christian or Christianity is way off base it's a broad brush stroke it's almost like saying evangelical what do you mean by that well I don't know what you mean by that it, it could be anywhere from prosperity gospel to John MacArthur which is kind of like the other end of it what does it mean to be Christian well the question itself is not that simple because we live in a culture where we we have no way to understand it. We, we tell our kids, you can be whatever you want to be, and, and, and you become your own authority in life. And so any outside source, any, any rational thinking, or any authority outside of yourself and your perception of life, it doesn't have the right to speak to you. It's not that we don't like authority. We just don't like authority that tells us something other than what we want to hear. Right? Right? And so we, 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 we want authority, we want things to tell us things are okay and things are fine or this is a Christian or that is this and, and all of that's fine as long as we already perceive that to be the case. And so when you come to, to understanding or, or the majority of Americans confessing themselves Christian, well, it's, it's easy to say that, that I like Christianity or my morals kind of line along with some kind of biblical perspective or, or I just think I'm Christian for whatever case and purpose. But when you come to understand what does it mean to be a Christian, there's a different answer. And what we come to is, and what we're left with, at least here, I think we come to understand that, we need something to inform us, something to tell us outside of ourselves. We need a source or an authority, which is very difficult and hard to understand in this day we live in. We need something that is fixed, something that speaks to us, conforms us, challenges us, confronts us, and not us mold and form and change it. And that is what we find here in, in God's Word. We're brought back to what the Bible says about our faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do we become one? How that impacts everything else in life? I think we find the answer here as well as many places in the book of Colossians, chapter number 3, verses 1 through 4. Now, Paul does not use the word Christian in, uh, in this epistle. He doesn't use it the way we use it, as a body of religion and, and, and uh, all the things that we think of. But he does use the principle of what we've come to understand, what does it mean to be a Christian. And then look at it with me, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ... You could say, since then you've been raised with Christ. But if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I love those two verses there, three and four. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want to look at it this morning under three headings, Lord willing. One is relational. The second is transformational. And the third is directional. Notice with me, there's much can be said about being a Christian or what Christianity is. But what stands out the most in Paul's writing and and throughout all of his letters and in the word of God is that it is relational. Uh, You see that in the language here in verse number one, where he says that you have been raised with Christ. He goes on and says that we're to seek those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on those things that are above, not with those things on the earth. And he goes on in verse number three and he says, you have died and your life is hidden. What is the next word? With Christ. There's that fellowship, that relationship in the language he's using. He says in verse number four, when Christ, who is your life. And I don't really understand the fullness of what he's saying there. I do and I can explain it, but still there's, a, there's kind of a mystery of what he's saying in this verse. But, but what he is saying that we can understand is that there is a connection, a union with the reality of who Christ is and who you are. So Christianity isn't just an ascent to a certain set of rules or I'm going to dress a certain way and, and, and wear my hair a certain way and all that other stuff that they used to say a long time ago. We have, a, uh, we have a doctrinal statement. If you join the church, we give you a doctrinal statement, and those are declarations of faith. The, the, those are things which we assert to be true. These are things that the Bible teaches that are unwavering in what we believe about God, about Christ, about his bodily resurrection. Uh, so we, we assent and we agree with all these things. And it's common to see all throughout church history that we've agreed to these kind of doctrines of faith, these certain teachings about life. It's not to diminish them, but even as we look at them, we, we hold those in the reality of being in relationship to Jesus Christ, with him, in him. That's what he's saying over and over. You go through Ephesians 1 and you could read through that. And it's all in Christ that that Christianity is made possible. It is with him that this is brought about. Even earlier in the book of Colossians, he argues at the beginning of verse number 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have had for all the saints. And he goes on and on. We see in verse uh, number 6 of chapter number 2, therefore as you receive Christ, the Lord were to walk in him. Verse number 7 Or to be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Verse number 9. In him the fullness of the deity bodily dwells. Verse number 11. In him. Do you see a connection here? We come to to see that Christianity at, at its very core, at its very root, is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. With Jesus Christ. Paul sums it up to the first Corinthians as he reminds them that God has called them into fellowship with his son. We're brought into a fellowship with his son. 
Now we know that the gospel is a message and the Bible says it is the power of God into salvation. We hear that language in our culture about the gospel and needing the gospel and preaching the gospel. But what is it? It is, it is the message of a person about Jesus Christ, his life, his, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. When we speak about the gospel, we're not just speaking about a, a, a blank thing that says gospel, a box that doesn't have anything in it. What we come to embrace and see front and center, Christianity is about Christ. And we live where we can have Christianity or claim or profess or have an identity of Christ without him at all. As we see even happening in Paul's day where he says they have a form of godliness, but they deny the what? Well, there is no substance. And all across our country, you can be assured there's many places with steeples and doors and all kinds of things in their church history about Christianity, and yet it is a Christless religion. And there's a lot of people who profess in this survey or whatever survey or holding in this world today uh, around us a, a, an identity of being Christian without having the substance, and that is the relationship with Jesus Christ. It is, it is a relationship. He is the content of the gospel. It is in him that we find hope and life. It is relational. But secondly, I want you to see not only is it relational in Colossians, but it is also transformational. We do not encounter Christ without change. We do not encounter Christ without change. Does being a Christian or believing in Jesus really make a difference? That's the question that Paul seeks to answer in chapter number two of Colossians. And we live in a society where it's kind of like a math problem. You know, those that, that we talk about a train leaving a station and it's going this rate of speed and it's going to meet another train leaving another station at another rate of speed. And sometimes we think Christianity is like that. It's kind of interesting and fascinating if you have nothing to do. Maybe like a game of Sudoku or whatever that's called, you know, and you, you just sit down and work out all the pieces. It's mysterious. It's, it's nice. But, but really, what impact does it have on the rest of my life? You remember, uh, like many of you, sitting in math class wondering, I'll never use this. And yet Christianity is far from that. At the very heart of being a Christian isn't just an ascent to some kind of doctrine or lining up with a group of people. That is significant. It is important. But it is, at its very heart, transformational. And he, and he shows us this in the language of dying and being raised from the dead. You see that in verse number 3, being raised with Christ. You, again, in verse number 3, that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. We'll look at that in a moment, maybe some more next week. But, but he speaks about death earlier than this. He, he actually defines us in kind, uh, in kind of grim terms. And who we are as as being born into this world, as, as being a man or being a woman, who we are outside of God, he defines us in that same kind of language. He, he says boldly, chapter number 2, look at it with me, in verse number 13. And you, now who's he speaking about here? Well, we could say he's speaking about the Colossians, those Christians there, but in, in, we can also say he's speaking about us this morning. You, who were what? Dead. 
I've been thinking about that word for two or three days. Why does he use that as an illustration? He begins that chapter that we read in our scripture reading this morning, Ephesians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and sin, or the trespass and the sin, as you see in Ephesians 2, verse number 1. He describes us in this language of being dead. Now, we know we're not dead, right? I think sometimes we come to church and it's really hard for us to not look dead at moments. It's probably the air or the lack of circulation or whatever it is. But we live. We know what it's like to be human. We, we enjoy things. We uh, love a good meal. We like fellowship and relationships. And, and we enjoy the world around us. We feel wind on our face, sometimes too much. And, and we're, much, we're alive. And yet here you say, you don't understand, before Christ, before you were saved, you were, in fact, dead. You were dead. In your sins, you were dead in your trespasses. Now we know he's not talking about physical death. As we said, we have this interaction with life around us. We have emotions. We get mad and angry and all those things uh, that go on to really show that we're alive. Notice back in verse 21 of chapter number 1 as he brings us to an understanding of what it means to be dead. He's speaking of us being Spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Not that we're physically dead. We're here, we're a being, we have actions, we think, we reason with life and all that. But he's saying that you were dead in the sense of your spiritual condition. In your trespasses, in your sin, you were dead. Now what does that look like? Well, you could go to a lot of places, but he actually gives them an example back in chapter number 1, verse 21, as we said. And you who were once alienated... What is he saying? He says you were, you were foreigners to God. You were strangers to him. We, we look back in the Old Testament as we see examples of that. You had the nation of Israel living among all of the other nations around him. But all the other nations were foreigners when it came to Israel and their God and their worship and their customs. They were, they were aliens to them. They were strangers. It's not part of their lifestyle, not part of their culture. And what Paul is saying here is that you, not just because you're Gentile, but we in our sinful state are alienated away from God. We're strangers to him in the sense that he is strange to us. And some of us are strange, but you know what I mean. He says you were alienated from God. His ways is not your ways. His thinking is not your thinking. His, his way of life, those things are foreign to you. You didn't adopt those and bring those in. You were once alienated from God. And it shows not only that foreignness, that strangeness, but that separation from God. Separation from God. But then he goes on and says, not only were you alienated from God, he says you were hostile in your mind. Speaking to, our, speaking to or of our attitude towards God. Paul says elsewhere that we were at enmity with God. That the way we thought, the way we lived this life, the way we perceived the world around us was anti-God, if I could say it that way. We talked last week, or Greg talked last week, about the Antichrist or the lawless one. We lived in that constant state of lawlessness, and we were in hostility towards God in our mind. Now, it may not manifest itself the same as it does in every person, but 
And because sometimes we think, well, I really wasn't very angry with God, but his ways, the way he calls us to live, the way he created us to be, all of that foreign to us, bringing us to this hostility in mind towards God. We were, if you're saved this morning, it's good to appreciate the past tense of Paul's writing. You were at enmity with God, at enemy of God and his righteousness. You did not love his ways. You did not follow his word. You did not follow his law. You followed your own way. You were turned inward. You were turned inward. And I think you see a manifestation of that in our society today, just as you did in Jesus' day. It's manifested most clearly in people's response to who Jesus Christ is. Christ coming, doing miracles, and preaching salvation. And, and what does his own people do? Crucify him. Does that sound like somebody passive against God? Somebody, I just don't care, live and let live, just going about our life. No, that sounds like someone that Paul is describing here. Someone living in hostility towards God. You see that in people's response to who Christ is in our culture. But not only does he describe our spiritual deadness and this hostility of mind, but he says, you were doing evil Deeds. Our actions against God's law, how we live, violating his commands, not just simply not murdering. That was a lot of knots in one sentence, wasn't it? <laughs> not avoiding murder only, but the very fact that we did not love the Lord God with all of our heart and we never loved our neighbor as ourselves. He said we were constantly living. That was the definition of who we are. Now, I know we describe ourselves. So we borrow a lot of things in our identity to make ourselves sound cool. We're, we're, we're a hiker. We're a blogger. We're this. We're that and all that other stuff. But, but before the face of God, at the very rudimentary level, the foundation of who we are, the Bible says you and I are at enmity with God. We were living in our evil deeds. We were alienated from him. Spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Bavnik has probably one of the best definitions of depravity, which this is what is considered under the doctrine of depravity, which I've probably shared with you at some point. I want to share with you this morning because it gives us an illustration, a kind of an idea of what he's saying here. He says, referring to the... Uh, Referring to depravity, it refers to the deepest inclinations, the innermost disposition, the fundamental directedness of human nature, and confesses that it is not turned toward God, but away from Him. It is when we look up from ourselves, if we would do that, but we're so consumed with ourselves, when we would look up from ourselves in front of us, we would find not God there, but whatever image or whatever else we're chasing after. At the very center of our being, born in this world, born in sin, we are turned away from God. As if we're going to different, we're just going in two different directions. We're going two different directions. Piper refers to spiritual deadness, and I like his explanation of this. It says that we are a rock towards God. Resist 
unresponsive to God, to the gospel, to the beauty of Christ. There is no embracing. There is no treasuring. We are spiritually dead. That's what he's saying and when he speaks about us being dead in our trespasses and sin. But then he goes on and says in that same verse, look at it again with me in verse number 13. This is who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And it is God who has made alive together with him, made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by the canceling of the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. See what he says. This is who you were and this is what God has done. That's why we say that salvation, being a Christian, is, is transformational. It takes that which was dead, that which was unresponsive to God, a rock towards God, and he says he makes him alive. Makes her alive. A new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, old things are passed away and all things become what? New. Something's different. It's a small thing. We're speaking about death and life. If we could grasp that image in our minds. He's saying that once this, this which was dead and unprofitable, unresponsive is now alive. And, and something is different. Something is new. What does that mean? Well, it means several things and many things that we won't deal with this morning. But one, it means that it has brought us near him. If being in our sin has separated us from God and being a transgressor of God's law uh, has brought us under the wrath and judgment of God, then being made alive in Christ Jesus brings us near him, close to him. That where we were once separated, now we are together. There is that relationship, that unity, that closeness, which we see in the Word of God, which we've seen in chapter number 3. He has made us alive with Christ Jesus. He has reconciled us in 2 Corinthians 5. He has reconciled us to Himself. He has reconciled us to Himself. Now, how does He do that? Well, we have the answer for us in verse 13 and 14. He does that by forgiving us all our trespasses. Look at the end of verse number 13. Forgiving us our trespasses. Verse 14, canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The law which condemned us, that's the language he's using there in verse number 14. The law which condemned us, all of its legal demands which demanded justice, righteousness, holiness, goodness, and purity, all of those things which it bears over. That's, that's a language of authority kind of ruling over, you know, as a, as a law would, would rule over its those who violated. And so here he's saying that that which ruled over us, that which condemned us, weighed on us, has been put away. He's nailed it to his cross. He's, he's put it away out of our sight, out of his presence. He has, he has taken our transgression. And so we come to see this dramatic transformation in our life and it's given to us by the forgiveness of God. He forgives us. But not, not in a way where he says, oh, just don't worry about it, it's no big thing, Right? Anybody who looks at the cross and says, don't worry about it, it's no big thing, is, is, doesn't know what they're looking at. 
No, by the very fact that Jesus coming into the world, taking on flesh, became that sin so that we might have his righteousness. He he forgives us not on the basis of because we really didn't mean to, but because Christ himself took our place. He extends to us forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiving us all of our transgression. So as we look to the cross, we see lying and stealing, adultery, covetousness, disobedience to parents, defiance, blasphemy, sacrilegious acts, idolatry, breaking the Sabbath. You see over and over every violation that you and I have rightly earned, every violation you and I rightly stand condemned of it. God, in a process of making us alive in Christ Jesus, has united us to the, so, in, into the death of Christ so much that as he dies, he takes our place. That's what we mean when we talk about substitutionary atonement. I know there's a group of theologians in the world today who think that's an awful doctrine. In part by it's an awful thought that God would kill his son in the place of someone else. And then, and then it's an awful doctrine because we're really not that bad. That we need someone to die in our place. We just need a little help along the way. But if you really saw your sin, and those of you who saw your sin this morning know that that is the most beautiful doctrine that we could ever come to understand. That someone in my desperate need took my place. That while I was dead, he took death and defeated death so that I can be made alive in Christ Jesus. You see, he, he has brought us near to him, taking away that which stood in our path, that which separated us from himself by, by the death of Jesus Christ. You know, a good question would be this morning, how do you get that? How do you go from... Dead to life. How do you go from guilty, walking in disobedience to, to forgiven, walking in fellowship? How do you go from being alienated to being sons? Well, it takes a miracle. He says in Ephesians 2, doesn't he, that it is a gift of God. It is by grace you're saved, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why is it a transformation? Because it is a work that God does through the Spirit of God in the heart of a sinner. It is that bringing to life that which was dead, that what, what Jesus refers to in John chapter 3 and in Titus, that new birth or that regeneration work of making us a new creation. It is also realized and actualized as we see in Ephesians, it is the gift of God, but it is also by faith. Is the grace, by grace, through faith. That's what he says earlier in Colossians chapter 1, doesn't he? When he says in verse number 4, 3 and 4, And we always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have had for all the saints. It is in Christ, it is faith in him and in him alone that we have that new life. It isn't in... In, in working over a new, new deal, it isn't in, in trying to do really well and, and be better than what you used to be and put your best foot forward. It is simply and solely the gift of God given to us by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There is no other alternative. There is no other way. 
We are turned towards God. And the only solution is the fact that Christ comes to us in our, in our direction. And, and, and it is in that way that we find favor with God through the means in which he has given to us through Jesus Christ. I think thirdly, it speaks not only, not only of the transformation, there's much more to be said about that, and maybe we'll deal with it a little more next week, but it deals with our direction. Look back in chapter number 3, verses 1 through 4. If you have been risen with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are in the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And we see in, our, in, our, in ourselves, we were turned inward. We were turned away from God. But what... What happens as we are born again, as we're saved, as, as Christ comes into our heart to make his home, that we are brought near to God. We call him Father. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, Marie, we cry out, Abba, Father, through the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But it isn't like some of you mothers do with your children who've disobeyed and you kind of bring them by to sit down beside of you. No, I mean, they're just there. You know, you kind of hope their face doesn't freeze the way it is. They're, they're angry, but you've got your hand on them. So amazed at that kind of authority grip. And they're there beside you, but they're not with you. There's a difference. Don't you agree? They're there, they're kicking, they're mad, they're slunched down, they just look miserable and hateful and, and, and everything that, and sometimes we can perceive Christianity in that kind of way. Some people look out, well, God says this and God's word says that. How do you live? How do you enjoy life? <laughs> it's, the truth is you don't know what living is. How can I explain it to you if you don't know who Christ is? No, you see something different, something, something more profound. It is this direction that not only are we brought near God, but we're brought turned face towards Him. No longer looking into ourselves for the answer and the sole authority in our life and rule in our life and delight of our life, but no, we're turned out to see Him who is the rule and the authority and the delight and the and the hope that we have. There's something different. Just as with the old nature, so the new nature comes with those, those delights and those desires. Paul instructing the church here, coming to understand who you are in Christ Jesus, having been forgiven your sin, is not an unremarkable thing for him to say that if you've been raised with Christ, if this is true of you, since this has been happened, seek those things which are above. Why? It's not unnatural because that is where Christ is. He, he emphasizes that in the reality that where he is, so is your life. Think about that for a moment. Your life, you. The rock bottom you, hidden in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> there's a mystery that he gives to us there. But he says there is a longing and there's a hope, there's an anticipation in the born-again believer that, that is rooted and founded in Christ and turning towards him and seeing him, being brought near him. There's a, a direction in our life that has changed. 
It's not just a, a Christianity in which we, we try out or one we just add on to everything else in our life. It is a dramatic change in our life. It is something at the very heart of who we are that we begin to, to seek those things, desire those things, where we begin to seek Him and desire Him, where we love Him. Isn't that a remarkable thought? You who were hostile in mind, alienated from God doing evil deeds. And now the Bible says that the love of God is spread out, shed abroad in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. I know a theologian who, who were, was explaining once uh, that he never says, I love the Lord. And he comes back from that tradition who, who comes to understand love in biblical terms as as more in our actions rather than just in our words. When in the Western world, we say love and, and we, we say it all the time. My, my family says it all the time. Kind of awkward in some places where we say it, but, but we say love. Love you, bro. Love you, you know, and all that stuff. And, and he grew up with that understanding in his biblical studies in the Old Testament. Come to understand love is just thrown around so broadly. So he would say, I hope I love the Lord by the way I live my life. And, and I sat back listening to him and, and saying... That's love. He may not claim it saying, I love the Lord, but that desire to, to serve him and honor him and, and to please him, that, that is an essence of loving him. That is a miracle wrought in our heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. It isn't something we work up. It is something that he, he's worked down in us. The joy it is to know who Christ is. I think of my own life as I think where I am today and all the ways I could describe myself and even standing in front of you this morning, it has to be God's grace. None of it I would have choose, chosen for myself. You see, it not only changes our, our relationship as far as being away from God, being near Him, it changes our direction and, and from being turned from Him, we're turned to Him. To him. Paul uses that same illustration in 2 Corinthians when we behold the face of the Lord, we're being changed from one level of glory to another. You see, we live in a world that is confused about life and confused about how we define ourselves, and we set hard markers and, and hard lines, and we associate ourselves or affiliate ourselves with so many things, and, and we're trying to capture us, the authentic us. Who am I? You sit some days and you look in the mirror and say, I don't know. And the word of God comes back and says, a Christian is fundamentally someone who has been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. To love and to serve him. It is not just a part of his life. It's not just an add-on, but it is a consuming work. And influences and impacts everything else in life. Maybe we'll look more at that next week, how that looks. But this week, just to be reminded what the Bible says, that being a Christian, it's relational. It's transformational. It is a work of God in the heart of man. It is taking that which is dead and unresponsive to God, to that which is responsive, that which delights and turns to God. It is directional. 
It is given to us in the Word of God over and over in Christ, in Christ. And this morning, if you don't know anything about what I've just said, the answer is found in Christ. Come to Him. Turn to Him. You can try all the means and all the, all the things that you want to try out, and it all leave you empty at the end of the day. It's only in Christ that we find what it means to be truly Christian, what it means truly to be born again. The rest of us, what a good reminder this morning that we are forgiven. What a word of assurance, forgiven. You're hidden in Christ. What do we need to fear in the world? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's no seat beside him. There's no equal. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? And there you are, kept till the day of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this morning. We just rejoice in your goodness towards us. Lord, I pray that you would let these few thoughts continue to work through our minds and help us. Help us as we navigate the, the dangers of the world that we're in, as we, we live in this society. Help us to be secure and founded and, and come to, to understand who we are in Christ. Because that touches and impacts everything else we do in life. So we just pray for that. Help us to see that in Jesus' name. Amen.